Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to us once again. If you're binging episodes of the show, hey, listen, take a break. Take a second or two and give us a rating or even better, a review at Apple Podcasts. Future listeners will thank you. This is episode number 118 of The Next Track, and we have a terrific guest today here to talk about a recent column she wrote for The Washington Post, where she is the classical music critic, Anne Majette. Anne, it's terrific to meet you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Anne, you wrote a wonderful article in The Washington Post last week, and this is something that I've been wanting to talk about on the show for a while. The title of this article, which of course created a minor controversy, is A Beginner's Guide to Enjoying Classical Music. No snobs allowed. And it's kind of funny when you look at the reactions and the comments and people on Twitter, and they're reacting to the way that you talk about snobs and you open the article, classical music aficionados, go away, this article is not for you. And some of the people didn't really understand what you're trying to do, whereas you're basically just saying to people, well, if you don't know classical music, here's some tips of how to discover it. Exactly, exactly. This article was actually born from a request from the editorial aide at the paper, who is dealing with all of my classical music listings and all of these names, and she's a smart young woman in her 20s, and she said, I think you should do an article on for people like me, like, what do I do next? And she's been to a couple of concerts. And I thought that's a great idea. But I don't want to write classical music for millennials, because that's so trite. And, um, and I also didn't want to do your sort of standard introduction. There are dozens out there, of, you know, classical music for dummies, classical music 101, and they tend to all follow a template. And um, there are certain things you're supposed to mention about classical music. It's supposed to make you smarter. Um, it has a structure and that improves your brain. And somehow listening to it is going to improve your brain without you even knowing it. You know, it's like... Especially for your babies. Exactly. They have to listen in utero. And I wanted to get away from all that because I don't think that's a very appealing premise. I mean, great. It means you can put it on in the background and automatically get smarter without listening to it. But the idea that there's something here for you and that it's just like other kinds of music, if you listen to music, you're going to have things that you like and dislike in classical music as well. Those points are not covered adequately in the, quote, literature of of classical music 101. And um, it's much more accessible and much less rocket science than people seem to think it is. And then classical music aficionados want people to think it is. I really... They, they want to keep the club closed. They don't want to let too many people in. Absolutely. And for all of the talk of diversity, and there's a lot of talk about diversity and opening up the club, they don't realize how ingrained these views are. And a lot of the programs for diversity that you see are based on a kind of horrifying colonialism mentality of we're going to improve the unwashed masses, particularly the ethnic minorities, by bringing them our great music. And this is the reason why El Sistema is so beloved in America. And there are many wonderful El Sistema programs. I have to say El Sistema in America has grown out of the original premise into something very laudable. But the basic idea of Gustavo Dudamel in Venezuela, the reason people love him so much, I believe, is that he is a young person from a different country who is doing it absolutely by the book. He's not coming in and really changing it. He's actually coming in and playing Beethoven and all the great works. He does some contemporary music, but what he represents is much more the success of that kind of colonialism than it is the actual kind of new wave that's going to bring in a, a different kind of 
audience. You know, it's interesting when when you look at classical music films, films of, of orchestral pieces and all that. Not long ago, I was watching maybe a Mahler symphony that was performed by Leonard Bernstein in the Vienna Misogynist Orchestra. <laughs> and when you look at the makeup of the orchestras, it's totally stunning of how it was. This was in the 70s when right. he did all these films back then. And you compare it to an orchestra today, the last concert I saw in Birmingham some months ago, there were young people, older people, there were many shades of skin, there were females, there were males, but they all had one thing in common. They all dressed in black. And the audience all had one thing in common. They were all sort of older white people. So as much as you try, even though the, the, the orchestras, the ensembles are made up of a variety of people, the audience still is snobbish, isn't it? Well, the whole construct has lagged lamentably in that if classical music, as long as classical music means that you go sit in a big fancy hall in a red velvet seat and listen for two hours of silence to music that you don't quite understand and you're anxious about not behaving right and clapping in the wrong place, that is just not an appealing thing. I mean, I can't get my non-music friends to go with me to orchestral concerts. It's not, it's not appealing. And there are so many ways to do it that could be different if you really did want to open it up. Um, and there's a lot of resistance from audiences, certainly, um, to those kinds of, of developments. And ironically, or not ironically, tellingly, the orchestras um, in America that are struggling are the big legacy orchestras. I mean, struggling is the wrong word, but the institutions in general, opera houses and orchestras, the big legacy ones are all, where are we going to get our money? Audiences are dwindling. The ones that are doing really well are kind of offbeat, smaller, have different schedules, maybe don't play 52 weeks a year, maybe play 20 weeks a year, but have thrilled and excited audiences for those concerts and play different repertoire. That's what we were wondering. How do, how do orchestras and, and small ensembles make themselves more accessible in order to, you know, permeate the culture a little bit more, because obviously orchestras are not doing it by playing in the concert hall. So how how are they getting out there? Well, you're seeing a lot of outreach programs by orchestras where they go to different neighborhoods, for example, like the Detroit Symphony um, in the wake of its long strike. Um, when it came back, it started going into, into people's neighborhoods. It began a whole program and it's been very successful. Um, and a lot of orchestras these days have some form of that. My, um, the Washington, D.C. orchestra goes into different neighborhoods and gives free concerts. And, you know, whether that does get people into your hall the, is of secondary importance. People often think, oh, we go to them and then they'll buy tickets to us. That's not the point. The point is reestablishing the orchestra as an entity, as a force in the community, as people are proud of. And making the music not so foreign anymore. Exactly. And letting people say they've been to an orchestra concert or two. Um, that said, I know many people who could afford to buy tickets to the orchestra who only go to those free events. But still, it's getting it on the radar and in people's minds. And um, a lot of chamber groups had have tried to do um, outreach in terms of playing in different venues, you know, going into bars. And usually people are very open to the music in bars. The music is not the problem. It's really the format in which it's given. And um, the more orchestras could work with that, the more, the better off they're going to be. But how do you get these people to de-snob? So that, that same concert in Birmingham, it was Murray Pariah playing Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto. Wonderful concert. It opened with Beethoven's first symphony, but before that, there was some single movement piece. I don't remember what it was, uh, orchestra and violin. 
And after it was over, people applauded because it was a single movement piece. After the first movement of the first symphony, a lot of people started applauding, thinking, oh, we can applaud after every movement. And everyone, half the people in the audience are like, shh. And how do you get beyond this? Because a string quartet playing in a bar is not going to have the kind of silence you get at the U.S. Open when someone is serving, right? Right. Um, you're going to have glasses clinking. You're going to have people talking. There's a real disconnect. Is it the concert hall that's the problem? I think the concert hall is a lot of the problem. I think that the whole construct that's grown up around receiving this all in silence is relatively recent, you know, and in the heyday of Mozart, there were concerts, people did talk, you know, and, and opera was like a baseball game. People were hawking food in the aisles and <laughs> yakking away and would occasionally stop if the singing was really good to pay attention. But um, so this whole idea that we have to receive it in silence is part of the off-putting thing. Um, and I do believe that everybody should applaud wherever they want. But that said, of course, as a classical music aficionado myself, um, there are moments in a quiet place after a movement, somebody applauds, and I do have an instinct to turn around and say, shh, you know, and, and I don't. But The worst thing is the bravo guy. That yeah. <laughs> once, that last chord before people start applauding, he yells out bravo. He's always there. <laughs> I, I remember watching a guy sleep through an act of uh, an opera in Frankfurt. It was uh, Simon Bocanegra and his wife or significant other who was with him was increasingly upset that he was sleeping and he was snoring a little bit. And when the second act ended, he jerked awake and began screaming, bravo, bravo, and applauding. And the whole audience went with him. And it had been not, not a great second act. And the performers were all sort of thrilled. And I thought it happens that easily. One person... <laughs> So one thing that's always bothered me is this idea that you need to be educated to appreciate classical music. I mean, I grew up listening to classical music on the Looney Tunes, right? I don't think kids get classical music with Bugs Buddy anymore. Yep. The whole idea that you have to go before the concert and they have to explain, you know, this is Fafner's motif and you have to get this and, and here's the, the inverse crab cannon version of it. And if you don't get this, you're stupid. It, it just just comes off as wrong. And that perpetuates the idea that this is some sort of closed club or you need to understand it. And my my response to that is always when I speak to groups of, you know, interest groups, which are always people in their 70s who have been going to music for a million years. So those are the aficionados. And invariably afterwards, at least two people will come up to me and say, oh, I could never do what you do. I love it so much, but I just don't understand it. And I say, you've been going every Thursday night for the last 40 years. <laughs> like, if I went to the movies every night for 40 years and said, I don't understand them, you'd laugh at me. But somehow classical music, you are not given permission to understand. And um, I always say, look, you went to Harvard or Yale or wherever it is. These are educated people. If you wanted, if you had to do what I did do, you would do it. And um, one man took me up on it. And I tell the story all the time. Every Friday morning after the Thursday night NSO concert for the last, I think we're up to seven years now, he began writing me his view. He was like, oh, maybe I can do what you do. And he started writing me and it's become his thing. I don't always answer him. I can't. But we've become, of course, very friendly over time. But the point is that at the end, especially the first few years, he would write and say, I have never appreciated my subscription in 40 years as much as I have now. And I said, I didn't do anything except give him permission to put his exactly to writing. And that gave him permission to realize that he had a lot of opinions about classical music. And that is heartbreaking because that's not even about reaching new audiences. That's about the established audience that loves it. They think they're not allowed to have opinions either. And if you're relying on the views of a few, you know, uh, 
ordained priests of the field, the critics who are somehow allowed to have opinions no one else is allowed to have, it's it's natural you wouldn't like that music. There's no organic connection to it. And um, But we, we had a period not long ago where you would have Leonard Bernstein on TV in the black and white days, yeah. or Glenn Gould doing TV things, and they were making classical music accessible. And what happened? Why... Uh, you know, obviously Bernstein moved on. Why has this all disappeared? E even with cable TV, you would expect that there's a market that could be filled with this sort of stuff. And and not the kind of things that you get on the DVD, the documentary that talks about, um, well, Beethoven, when he composed this, he had warts and he was in pain. And, you know, the, the kind of thing that's going to be... I'm, I'm remembering that one music appreciation class that I had in high school where the guy was explaining to us pictures at an exhibition by Mussorgsky. And he was going through all the pictures are like this and the pictures are all like that. And I didn't know at the time, but Emerson, Lake and Palmer had did their own version. And I bought that record. And that's what made me appreciate that music. Well, in Boston, we have the Boston Pops. And, you know, for years they had a, a Sunday night television show and we used to watch it as kids. I mean, we weren't you know, we were a lower middle class family growing up. We we were all musicians, but I mean, we liked to watch the Boston Pops and Arthur Fiedler, and they played familiar classical songs, and they played familiar standards and things like that. So in that way, they 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 make it accessible. Uh, and I'm wondering why things like that just don't. Why there aren't more pops presentations? It's funny. There's almost every orchestra in America has also its pops orchestra, its pop series. But the the downside of that is that light music got moved over to the Pops concerts. And the idea that an orchestra concert must be serious and profound and the Pops concert is light and fun. Somebody has pointed out that the programming of orchestra concerts really shifted once Pops concerts came in. Um, and that is arguably a problem because if you're a newbie coming, you're faced with this profundity all the time. You don't get the sort of variety of the diet the same way. And secondly, Pops orchestras are going through the same struggle for audiences that regular orchestras are going through. And so keeping Pops concerts alive has become a subset of the keeping classical music alive issue. Uh -huh. But, you know, the, the real issue is that um, classical music occupies a different position in the society than it did. Um, it has gradually moved away from the gravitational pull. There are so many other forms of music, and there are many other forms of music that a discriminating, intelligent listener may choose to listen to. Um, that classical music has to reaffirm why, you know, its place in that world. And classical music was so used to being the only one and the best one that that attitude still prevails. And, and I think younger composers and the sort of alt-classical things that are springing up now are dealing with classical music's place in a much bigger universe. But the orchestral concert is still back in the, you know, 1950s. One of the issues that we talk about a lot on this podcast is... Uh how people listen to music today, not only the music they listen to, but how they listen to it, what devices they use to listen to music. And classical music has kind of been shut out of devices because of the metadata issue with classical music. I mean, pop music can be categorized very simply by the name of the song, the name of the person or people who recorded it and the album that it's from. Ideally, maybe you only need two items to identify any pop oriented song. But classical music requires a bit more information. And because of the way that we listen to music has has evolved, classical music has been shut out. And it, it almost seems like they didn't even make an attempt to, to try to, to, to get involved in, 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 in their metadata control. It's funny because I've been working on metadata since just before iTunes launched. I worked for a company called musicmaker.com, which had a lot of the same catalog iTunes had. And I spent an entire year trying to get that metadata into some kind of shape where you could use it. 
Um, I'm friendly now with a musicologist whom you might want to have on your show who's doing a lot of work on metadata for exactly this reason. I have a six-year-old son, and um, we moved last year, and I confess we haven't set up the CD player because my husband and I listen a lot on our own computers because we're both musicians, so we don't want the other one's music necessarily. And our son has moved completely to Alexa. And when you ask Alexa, the Amazon device, to play, you know, Beethoven, you get crap. You get you don't even know what the conductor is. You get a lot of pops versions. You can't really control it. And um, it's kind of horrifying because the generation will grow up completely dissociated from this music. Also, these things only understand certain names. Yeah. So it, it, I'm, I'm fluent in French. If I were to ask for a French composer's name, I would pronounce it the French way and they wouldn't understand it. But l let's say just to use a, a funny example, you wanted to listen to Borodin's Palavetsi's <laughs> dance number two, which we were discussing the other day. It's like, how would you even know that Borodin wrote the Palavetsian dance number two? How would you know to even ask yeah, for it? Yeah. And trying to second guess the Anglic anglicized pronunciation that Alexis is going to understand can take ages. I mean, there was an interesting article about this phenomenon, um, not even related to music, but the way that Alexa discriminates against people with an accent, for example, that the frustration of people who don't have mainstream accents um, which is which is a fascinating sort of subset of it. I mean, how would you get a Wagner opera through Alexa or Siri? <laughs> oh, I try. But, and what happens is my husband, we're sitting at the table, we all take turns because the way to get my son to listen to something is he gets to pick one, my husband picks one, I pick one. And I'm always there trying to get Alexa to understand me until my husband just goes on Spotify and finds the darn thing and makes Alexa play it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it's that, true. There's no, there's no good solution on that one. Yeah, well, it's true because a lot of, you know, a lot of this is from different countries with names that are retained in the original or piano concerto number whatever. That doesn't say anything. It's, it's true that you know Beethoven has a pastoral symphony and there are other symphonies that have nicknames and all that. But there's nothing in the, the, the way that the, these things are named in the naming conventions. There's nothing that helps people understand what it is. No, you you have to learn all this. You have to memorize. You have to buy the Penguin Record Guide or whatever it is in order to even know what to listen to. On the other hand, now all the streaming services have playlists, and you can go and you can listen to a playlist made by Deutsche Grammophon. But do you really want to listen to classical music in three minute segments of unrelated? movements, works, and forms, and all that. That's not the way to get people interested. It's a horrifying problem, and and it's not, the work to counteract it is not happening as fast as the changes are happening. You know, the I would not have predicted it in my own household. We're listening mostly to streaming in terms of what my son perceives um, so quickly, and our boxes and boxes and boxes of CDs are in boxes, you know, and as far as our day-to-day -day consumption. And what this will do to my son's taste is is... You know, the jury is out. It's ironic that he has two parents who are steeped in this world and is not uh, not partaking in it the way I would have hoped. But he can't. He's unable to get at it. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, you could say we could play him CDs and I tried that a lot. But he, one of the first things he learned when he was about a year and a half was to learn, work the CD player. So he would just go over and push eject on anything he didn't immediately like and put in his own CDs. So it was very, training his ear was a very difficult proposition from the beginning. I remember when I was a kid, I would experiment with my, my parents' record collection. And what drew me to interesting music was the album cover. Yep. That's what, and I wouldn't know what, I couldn't even read what was on it, but I could run the, the turntable. And so that's, that's an element that, that that's, yes, exactly. that's lost. Absolutely. And my, when I fell asleep as a child, I got to put an LP on the record player and listen to one LP as I fell asleep. 
and that was it was like reading it was an enormous and of course now with the cd and with streaming there's no natural sort of time limit to let a child fall asleep i mean that's silly because everybody has different machines to get their kids music to fall asleep to but uh, i don't want it to turn into like an old fogey kids in my day did this either but um but i think that the the definitely the, the consumption modes have a terrible effect on people's openness to this. Um, of course, hearing a live concert is an, is an experience unto itself in terms of getting people excited. Um, but the other thing people often don't realize is that not every live concert is great. We have such a glut of orchestra concerts. If you live in a town and there's an orchestra, how many of those concerts are going to be really great? It's wonderful if you already love the music, you can go several times and the con it's either music you love or, hey, that one was really fabulous. But for a first timer, um, I always say one reason that I write tough reviews is to let people know they have permission not to like something. But my sister-in-law, once who is not musical particularly, once said to me, oh, we were at an orchestra concert last week and I guess that music just isn't for me. And she was living in Maine at the time and they were going to some local orchestra. And I said, maybe you heard a crappy orchestra. And the look on her face of empowerment, it was like she felt sort of obligated to like it. And the thought that, hey, maybe my view was right. Maybe it was a bad concert. Um, I want everybody to have that feeling. I want everybody to feel that they get to say they don't like it and go to try it again. And there's such a monolithic thing about classical music that people forget that there can be good performances and bad performances, just like any music you hear in a bar, you know, to go say, oh, I heard a singer songwriter in our local bar last week. I didn't care for it. Therefore, I don't like pop music would be ridiculous. But people forget, you know, that there's it's the same thing. What what stuns me is that there's so much money in classical music and, and not only in the performers and the, the venues and, and the patrons and all the rich champagne and caviar people, but the record labels and all that. Why haven't they figured out? Because they know the demographics. They know that their audience is getting older. Why haven't they figured out ways to expose this to people other than pretending that they have to educate people to learn to like the music? Yeah, I... It's tricky, although I do say that one of the barriers to younger entrepreneurs, like to, because winning over the younger generation of patrons is equally important, and you know as important as it is to get the 25-year-olds, it's equally important to get the 55-year-olds who are now not necessarily going over there, um, my my peers who are not donating their money. Because if you're 55 today and you have a lot of money and you're interested in music and you want to give music to somebody, you can give a bunch of money to a concert, to a symphony orchestra, and have your name and fine print on the program. Or you can go on GoFundMe or Kickstarter and find some artist you like. And with the same amount of money, you can become that artist's guardian angel, befriend them, fly with them. You, know, you can change their career. Yeah. Really change, and, and have an active part in it and become personally connected. And that's a no brainer. I mean, I would if I had that money, I can see the appeal of doing that instead. Of course, you know, why would you want to have your name in the fine print? It's a social convention. And that social convention, the whole, you know, high society has always been linked with classical music, um, but that is no longer as appealing. That whole society is moved out of what's cool or what people aspire to. And classical music linked itself to that horse so tightly that it's riding away with it. We were talking earlier about why, you know, take the formality out of the performance and let the musicians wear jeans and and go barefoot. And I mean, we go to rock concerts and this is how, how our our favorite rock people look. And the our Grateful Dead always yeah, got that, yeah. those Persian carpets on stage. Why can't, you know, Dudamel go up there barefoot with a Persian carpet? Well, Dudamel used to do the thing, at least when they all did the sweatshirts, they all would finish Mambo and they would appear in Venezuelan sweatshirts and then they would throw them out in the crowd. And I was watching, you know, 
white-haired people racing up to grab those sweatshirts. <laughs> Why don't we have more of this? But of course, Dudamel has been incorporated now more into the yeah. stream. I haven't seen him in LA. I haven't seen him in action there. I know there's, he's still very charismatic, but I don't think they're throwing sweatshirts around the same way, you know. But there's only one Dudamel. Exactly. Exactly. Where, where's all the other young conductors, composers, performers doing things? I mean, you mentioned seven points in your article about classical music. You say one of them, classical music, isn't just about the composers. And you talk about some people, Yuja Wang, Hilary Hahn, etc., people who are doing things a little bit differently, both in their choice of program or their choice of dress. Uh, Yuja Wang, people talk more about the way she dresses often than the way she plays, which, you know, is kind of sexistly ridiculous. But Hilary Hahn, for example, she's she commissioned a few years ago a series of encores and recorded these encores by many unknown composers or many composers that most people have never heard of. Not that many performers have the status in the classical music world to be able to do that, but there are some. Why aren't there more of these? Are they all in fear of not being programmed? Oh, I, I think there are more and more. I think that the um, structure is having trouble figuring out what to do with them. Um, Simona Dinerstein is a great example, who's just an incredible artist and a very distinctive artist. And so she has this huge success with the Goldberg Variations some years ago. Which Wonderful recording, yeah. On her own, you know, she basically yeah. went out to make this recording. She learned the piece while she was pregnant. She wasn't having the career she wanted. She goes and records this piece, and then it becomes a huge success. And so... She gets an agent and he immediately begins booking her in to do concerti with big orchestras. And you think if somebody's whole story is about this personal quest and this incredibly intimate, idiosyncratic Goldberg, why would you immediately stick them into the template of what's normal? And Simona has gone on to have a wonderful career. It obviously hasn't hurt her, but a lot of her big projects have been these personal things. She did a thing with the songwriter Tiff Merritt. Um, she did a recording project and tour project with the Cuban orchestra that she met over there and brought over the orchestra of Havana. It was called Mozart and Mozart and Havana was the name of the album. It came out, I think last year or two years ago. And um, so she continues to do these very quirky things. And yet the, the business has trouble finding room for those stories, even though those stories are most of the star stories we see. Hilary Hahn, who you mentioned before her encore project is now working very hard to find other ways of getting music to people, including going and playing to mom groups and knitting groups, trying to find groups of people who aren't there for the concert and see how music just interacts with their lives, um, which is a fascinating idea. And it's very tricky to implement. In, in a way, what they need to do is figure out how to get to get past all these middle-aged and elderly people who go to the concerts. And that includes myself, you know, when I go to a concert, I, I'm just surprised to see that I'm still younger than most of them, but surprised to see what they look like. It's the same in the theater. So I'm a few miles from Stratford-upon-Avon. We regularly go to see the Royal Shakespeare Company. Two nights ago, we saw their new production of The Merry Wives of Windsor, which arguably is Shakespeare's worst play. <laughs> well, he wrote it because apparently Queen Elizabeth wanted another play with Falstaff, who died in Henry V, but wanted to bring him back. And so the actor playing Falstaff is wonderful. But the production was based on something I had never heard of, a TV show called The Only Way is Essex. Apparently, it's like the Jersey Shore of the UK. So people with these accents and dressed really cheaply and all this. And it was obviously a white middle-aged audience. But I had never seen in the RSC so many people enjoy a production as much as they did. I didn't like it, but all these people were laughing and applauding, and it was great. And it was it was irreverent. The, last night was press night. The reviews came out today, and most are pretty negative. 
But I'm thinking if this is getting people into the theater to see to see Shakespeare, even if it's not Shakespeare's best play, it can't be that wrong. Can't they do this in classical music? Can't they, I don't know, not play on the stage, put the instruments somewhere in the audience? Those seats can be taken out. Can't can't the string section go up on the top level and the woodwinds on the left? Can't they do something different rather than, you know, the guy on the podium who comes out and and bows to the audience and then turns his back to them. I mean, what's that all about even? There are groups that are looking at this, um, particularly educational groups. A lot of the good work that's going on about this is in universities. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the New World Symphony in Florida, which is Michael Tilson Thomas's educational orchestra. It actually has EDU URL. It's it's an educational organization, but it's for young professionals. And they have a Frank Geary building that was designed precisely to kind of open things up in this way. And they do live wall cast part of the building, which looks right out over the South Beach Boardwalk, which is a you know huge artery in Miami for a non-classical music loving audience. Um, so they broadcast webcasts up on the side of this building and people can just stop and watch for a while. And um, they've been playing with different formats and different kinds of concerts. And um, the idea of say having a chamber music evening where you have a bunch of different people playing in different spaces and the audience can come and go as if you were at a gallery opening. Or or at a popular music festival where you have multiple performers on stages. Yeah, exactly. And um, to try to get that kind of vibe, I think, I think you are seeing more of that. And, you know, when you were saying before, where are the young conductors? There are a lot of charismatic young conductors who are, trying things. It's a little harder in the institution of an orchestra because things are so fixed there. And also they have to struggle so hard just to keep the status quo. There's not a lot of bandwidth in anybody's mind for going outside the box as necessary as they all understand it is, because you've got to just keep raising the money and working as hard as you can just to get the concerts on stage. Well, money is one of the big problems, isn't it? Because I was looking at the National Symphony Orchestra website. Tickets are, what, 45 to about $200 Two hundred dollars is a lot. Forty-five is affordable, but a lot of people are going to hesitate to spend that much for an orchestral concert. Right. Over here, a lot of the theaters have like ten-pound tickets. The National Theater does that regularly because it's nationally funded in in many ways. But a couple of weeks ago, I've I have never actually seen an opera. I've seen scores of classical concerts, but I've never seen an opera unless you count Einstein on the Beach, which some wouldn't count. And so I was thinking I'd like to go to Glyndebourne and see something there. I think the cheapest seats that were available are about 125 pounds. The more expensive seats are 250 pounds. And that's just, it's just prohibitive for most people. One thing about a concert is you can sit in the last row. If it's a good venue, you'll hear everything fine. But for an opera, it's kind of different. You do need to see what's going on on stage. So the money does prevent a lot of people from going to concerts. I mean, in my college years, I went to the Metropolitan Opera and I got the standing room tickets all the way up at the back. And that was my thing. And there were a lot of passionate fans. I mean, having that experience in a way hones your your love of it. Um, of course, what you were saying before about the Merry Wives of Windsor and the production taps completely into opera, but opera remains kind of a different discussion in this because it's been so taken over by directors and the idea yeah. that the creative part of opera is in the direction. And then you have these weird directions and the audience is really put off by um, that's a whole sort of different discussion that you don't get in orchestral music. Um, yeah. But as for the pricing, I mean, a lot of orchestras in America do have student tickets and rush tickets. Um, the NSO papers a lot, although they don't want you to know that, but uh, yeah. papering being when you're trying to give away the tickets. Um, 
but and they'll do a lot of variable pricing, which is a tricky thing because you know pricing according to demand, people will get really annoyed if they paid a hundred dollars for a ticket and somebody else gets the same ticket for twenty dollars. They say, why do we pay a hundred? We should just wait for the day of and pay twenty. So yeah. I, pricing pricing needs addressing, and the common classical argument that well people will pay two hundred dollars to hear the Rolling Stones is not a valid argument because that's an event. That's a once one off. That's a one time thing. Yeah. I mean, classical yeah. music is suffering right now with the, the conflict in how it builds itself, because on the one hand, it wants to say, I am, it's going to be a great experience, it's going to change your life, it's going to be majestic and magnificent. And on the other hand, it happens every week, like your orchestra plays every week, that you're not going to have a majestic experience every week. You're not going to have your mind blown every week. So if you market it like that, people are going to think they only need to go once or twice a year, which is what's happening. Um, orchestras are actually reaching many, many, many more people than ever before in their history. But those people are buying many fewer tickets. Yeah. And so the orchestra yeah. has to work six times harder to get the same amount of people in its hall. Um, and people, so people aren't subscribing as much. They're buying one-off tickets more. Or going, you know, even if it means not subscribing, but just going back. You don't go back as yeah. much. You kind of check it yeah. off your bucket list. Or maybe you go once or twice a year. Either way, it's not what the orchestra needs to survive, but you're not conveying the message that this is a sustaining thing that will that you need to hear every Thursday, you know. The, the papering thing is interesting. For a couple of years, I, I grew up in New York City, and my roommate's, my best friend and roommate's mother ran a nursing home on the Upper East Side. And somehow she had a deal with Carnegie Hall where she would get tickets, where there were extra tickets. And none of the people in the nursing home ever wanted to go. So we were going to Carnegie Hall two or three times a week um, for, for a year or two. And we saw some extraordinary musicians and it was never full. And, and our seats were always very good. We were never up in the top level. And, and this was a formative experience. I don't remember too much of who I saw or what I heard at the time. Yeah. And, and you know, I had already been listening to some classical music, but you're going to a concert of a type of classical music you don't know. I played guitar, so I knew a lot of guitar music, but I didn't know, for instance, Liszt's piano music. And it was quite a formative experience and didn't cost a cent. That's amazing. That, the sad part is, A, that people didn't want to go. I thought nursing homes were who does go, you know. And, um, and B, that it wasn't full, because I feel like we've seen a real drop-off just in the last five or ten years in audience size that you really are noticing. The Metropolitan Opera is no longer sold out. Like, you can have routine performances that are half full. And that never used to happen. It may not have been absolutely sold out, but it was always there was always a critical mass. And I think we're seeing the time when that critical mass is passing. And I think there's been an ostrich head in the sand effect um, reaction to it, that people haven't devoted the right, the right resources to that. And the common reaction of orchestras and opera houses to say, well, the problem is education. People aren't getting classical music in the schools the way they were. And therefore we're going to invest big in education. Well, of course, and that's canny and that you're kicking the can down the road. You put all your money in education. You're not going to see a payoff for 20 years anyway. And you yourself as the executive are going to be gone by then. But um, it's a complete straw man. I think that the lack of education is a symptom, not a cause, because my generation was still getting education in the schools. There was classical music education. And they're the generation that's not going a whole lot. Yeah, I didn't. I just had one music appreciation class. Really? Um, in high school. You didn't so, chorus or band or anything? No, not at all. No. I did. I did. We had a very large high school and we had a very large band, which was a marching band and an orchestral band. So it was, but they don't have that now. 
There's in the, in the town I live in. There's no there's no music. Program. I mean, I grew up in I I went to high school for two years in New York City and for two years in Roswell, New Mexico. So I moved from where the chamber music program was like people who were playing at town hall on the side and to the large marching band. I was in the chorus. We used to travel to Allstate and do the bus tours and this exactly. whole very active. And that chorus went away for a while. And now it's coming back. They, they were trying to bring it back and it's sort of there again. So there's been a kind of parabola wave. I know that when the Venezuelan founders of El Sistema were setting it up, they traveled to America to learn how America did education. So the irony that America is now looking to Venezuela and El Sistema without sort of realizing the, the roots of this that were in our own country is, is amusing. But, you know, whatever gets kids, it's not bad to teach kids to learn music. You know, it's not bad to teach kids about music. I just don't think that's going to suddenly create a new generation of um of concert goers, it takes more of a social change than that. And also, um, when the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra began doing its program called Rusty Musicians, which was getting musicians to actually come play with the orchestra, and it's been very successful. They now do a summer academy, I think they're still doing it, where professional, I mean, where adult amateur musicians can come and work for a week or two with orchestra players and they do lessons and, and it's had huge turnout. But a lot of the people who were playing in those groups, who were lifelong players, who never stopped playing the violin, said they never had gone to concerts because they were too busy playing themselves in amateur groups. So it's not that amateurs are automatically the audience. Many of them did begin subscribing because they appreciated the outreach the orchestra had done. So in that sense, it was smart. But it also demonstrated to me what a fallacy it is to think that just because you created people who love music, they're automatically going to want to go to concerts. Participation is the trend of our time for the last couple of decades. People want things they can do themselves. And orchestra concerts have become the opposite of that. You don't even get to think for yourself. You sit there and are told what you're supposed to like and then listen to it and hope you kind of got it. Yes, but the music is relaxing. Yes, and it makes you smart. Don't forget. <laughs> it's one of the points you mentioned in your article, and I don't agree with that. I mean, you've listened to symphonies by Alan Peterson. They're not relaxing. No. One of my favorite composers is Toru Takamitsu. His music is not relaxing at all. Probably doesn't make me much smarter. I included in, I included that point and then said immediately in my article, I do not actually agree with yeah. this. But yeah. really, the majority of people I know who aren't into classical music want it in the background to relax to, to work to. What, I mean, things I absolutely... But that's what the record labels are, are, are pushing as well. They have all these playlists of music for studying, or the one that I used to love that iTunes kept recommending to me, classical music for elevators. <laughs> As as one of our guests, Andy Doe, said once, everyone knows that elevators don't like classical music. <laughs> well, it's uplifting. I mean, after all. Well, yeah, okay, but I, I, it's true that the marketing is a bit ridiculous. Just, just to 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 bounce back what you said about half empty concerts. I've seen Murray Pariah twice in the past couple of years, and he performed a recital finishing with Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata about a year and a half ago in Birmingham. This is a venue I think it holds about two thousand seats. The ground floor was two-thirds full, the first level was half full, and the top two levels were completely empty, so they were closed off. So he didn't even sell half the tickets in this venue in Birmingham, the second largest city in the country. Two days later, it was sold out in London for the same program. Well, I mean, this is the whole thing about solo concerts. Um, there used to be, somebody quoted to me in a piece I did a couple of years ago, and it really shocked me, that there used to be handfuls of soloists who could sell out a house. And now he said there are five. And this is 10 years ago. And one of his five was Itzhak Perlman, who I'm not sure would sell out anymore. Um, but when you think about it, like, who are the big soloists who could actually sell out a house? And it was Long Long Long. Long Long. 
Long Long Josh Bell, Renee Fleming, um, uh, Itzhak Perlman, and I forget who his fifth was. Um, it might have been Emmanuel Axe, but I don't think he would sell out anymore either, you know? Yeah. That's another generation. That's another thing. When you look at a record collection today, when you look at CDs streaming that's available, it is a generation of musicians that, you know, started in the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, and have started retiring. Like Alfred Brendel, he was a stalwart for, for decades, and he retired some time ago. But you've got all these recordings. Murray Pariah is getting close to retirement age, um, though he's quite sprightly. But that's the, that whole generation of those musicians who lived through the rise of classical music in the 70s and then the, the, the expansion of classical music in the CD days. Yeah. They're all nearing retirement. They're nearing retirement, absolutely. Although there are a number of big soloists like Yu Zhuang, like Daniel Trifonov, I, I mentioned in the article, who were... Yeah who are pretty big news. It's true, it doesn't compare in terms of record sales, because nothing compares in terms of record sales to what it used to be. I mean, the Chicago Symphony used to be upset if it didn't sell 50,000 copies of a record. And now 50,000 copies is almost unimaginable in the classical realm. It never happens. I mean, you get on the classical chart for selling literally 500. It's, um, but the, I mean, that also was happening across the recording industry, not only in classical music. It was a huge drop-off in, in sales. Um, Oh, I know what I was going to say about Mir Pariah and the sold-out concert. Um, concert halls are also much too big because a piano, a solo piano recital should not be happening in a concert hall of 2,000 seats, whether or not it can sell out. That is not the space in which somebody new to it is going to really fall in love or relate to the genre. And America in particular has built many, many halls that are too large. And everybody moans that they want a concert hall of 1,500 seats, and there are shockingly few of them. You have either under 1,000 or you have 2,000 and up. And the sweet spot for most performances is going to be 1,500 seats. And for economic reasons, everything is 4,000. And um, But psychologically, a half-empty hall is a deterrent, even if you have a crowd that would be impressive for many things. I mean, say he sold a 1,000 seats. That's pretty good, a 1,000 seats. But in a 2,000-seat hall, everybody feels the weight of the emptiness, and it drags it down. Um, and that's that's a continual problem, because then putting it in the smaller hall, the presenter loses money, and they don't want to do that. So it's uh, it's people talk about it a lot, but there hasn't been a solution. Okay, this has been really interesting. So if you are a beginner to classical music, I know a lot of our listeners are classical music fans, and a lot are not. They are Grateful Dead fans like me. Check out this article and, and list a number of names of things you can look up. Go to your favorite streaming service, look them up. Go to your streaming service. If you use Apple Music, you go to the, the genre section and classical and look at what the new releases are. I don't know how Spotify does that. Just pick an album at random and put it on. And if you don't like it, it doesn't cost you anything. Skip to the next one and try it out. There's tons to listen to. And thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right, so here's what we're going to do now. We're going to present our next tracks. This is music that we're going to be listening to that we think you might be interested in listening to, too. Kirk? For my next track this week, I'm going to pick something that we mentioned in the show and that I haven't listened to in a while. It is called In 27 Pieces, the Hilary Hahn Encores. Violinist Hilary Hahn commissioned a number of short pieces to be played as encores after her concerts, and these are all for violin and piano, and she would do a recital playing Beethoven and Schubert or whatever, and she would end with one of these pieces. And she commissioned this in a number of ways. She approached some well-known composers and lesser-known composers, and then she invited a number of people to just send in some scores. And she selected 27 of them, though, if you bought it from the iTunes store, you get the 28th bonus track. 
And it's a very interesting variety of music, all contemporary. This was released in 2013. It ranges from minimalism to atonal music, and there's some Asian-oriented music, and there's some European-oriented music, and I haven't listened to it in years, so I'm going to go and put this back on as my actual next track today when we're finished. Doug, what are you going to listen to? I'm a casual Iggy Pop fan. I think I do have the requisite reverence for his contributions to to rock music and, and such. But uh, I wasn't a Stooges fan, and it wasn't until his solo albums came out in the late 70s, like The Idiot and Lust for Life, that I really started to like a lot of his music. But I, I still did not like going back and listening to the Stooges. I just didn't didn't care for it. After the Stooges broke up, the guitar player for the Stooges helped Iggy put together a demo album so he could shop it around and, and get, get a solo contract. And the album that they recorded was eventually released. It's called Kill City. And it's a really interesting document of how Iggy is looking for this persona. He's looking for his voice in a post-Stooges world. Now, the interesting thing about the way this record was recorded, James Williamson put it together with a couple of great session guys, Scott Thurston, Brian Glasscock, people like that. And Iggy at the time was recovering from heroin addiction and was let out from a care facility on the weekends to record vocals. So the musicians would record stuff during the week. Iggy would come in and do the vocals on the weekend, which also is very interesting because it's just, you can definitely feel a distance uh, in his voice from the music. But as I said, he's trying to get this, you know, Iggy Pop sound, which I guess later you would call this Bowie-esque thing that he did. Um, which is much more apparent and much more uh, crafted, well-crafted on The Idiot and Lust for Life and those albums. So this album, Kill City, was originally recorded in 75, was not released until 1977, and was eventually remastered in 2010. And that's the one I'm listening to. It's quite good. If you like the rock music from the 70s, if you like Iggy Pop, I would definitely check it out. It's an album I didn't know about until very recently. It's Iggy Pop and James Williamson, Kill City, and it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.